The following is a message from Parkview Church in Iowa City, Iowa. More information about Parkview is available at www.parkviewchurch.org. You know, faith really does work, and it's, you know, it's the same faith that uh, caused the Luscos to pray for their child, God answered that prayer. But I'll tell you what, it's the exact same faith that caused those daughters in our own family who were expecting to live and and in God's providential care and reasoning, he chose to take those babies home. Same faith. It's the same faith that there are those who pray that their child will be healed and God takes them home as well. Same faith. Faith works. It does work in different ways and at different times, different, different places. Uh, James tells us very clearly that faith is extremely practical. And it intersects life in many, many different ways, whether he heals a child or takes a child, uh, whether he takes us through the rough times of life quickly or if it seems to take a long, long time. Uh, Doug mentioned it last week that one of the marks of us becoming Christians is that we receive the word. We trust Christ, we receive the word, and it's far more, we discovered, than just mental clarity. Do you believe X, Y, Z? It's way more than that. When we receive the word, it's more, we're more than just doers of the word. Um, we're, we're, we're not just hearers of the word, we're doers of the word. Otherwise, if, if we hear and don't do, uh, the Bible makes it very clear in verse 22 that we can very easily uh, deceive ourselves. So let me give you the argument right where we are in the book of James. James' argument is this. If you have lumbano, if you've received, if you've taken, if you've grasped, if you've held to the word, it's going to make a dramatic difference in your life. And you're going to be a doer of the word, not just somebody who believes doctrine. It's going to make a difference in your life. And if it makes a difference in your life, it's going to manifest itself. And this one key area we're going to look at today it's going to manifest itself in this area of what he's going to call royal love. Royal love. We'll get to that in just a minute, but real quickly, it's, it's uh, the, the royal love is that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. All of scripture is fulfilled there. Well, he's going to confront them with an issue. He's saying, look, if you're going to really be a doer of the word, not a receiver, then I need to help you because you're struggling in a particular area of your life. And so he gives us example in chapter 2, verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. So God created all, loves all equally. We saw that in communion. The greatest picture of it is right there. Uh, in the good news, it says you must never treat people in different ways according to these externals, these outward appearance, appearances. In other words, he's saying, if, if your faith is really real, then love is going to be really real in your life, and you are not going to be discriminatory and base your actions on the externals of individuals. And there's a lot of different ways. Now, let me be real specific. In this text, in James, he's talking about inside the church. So when he's talking about appearances inside the church, He's dealing more with left-right issues than right-wrong issues. Outside of the church, when we're talking about dealing with those who don't have the gospel, then it, it morphs into more right-wrong issues. In other words, issues of sin. And we're to deal with those in the, in the same way when we're dealing outside of the church, we are to be friends of sinners and we're not to categorize 
sins, like one's better than another, and you're better because your sin is at level A versus level B. Okay, so we're not to be discriminatory there. I just want to make it real clear that you understand. I don't want you to think that when we're not to discriminate with inside the church, they're just talking about sin. Because James makes it very clear in this whole book, we are in a very loving, merciful way, we are to deal with sin in each other's lives. Okay, he makes it very clear through the rest of the book. But he's talking about non-moral issues of discrimination. Things such as appearance. You know, when I, when I first became a Christian, December 31st, 1971, 11.45 p.m., one of the issues of discriminatory appearance in the church was the way you looked. I mean, it was, back then, it was the length of hair. If you had long hair, if you had a beard, I mean, people looked at you like, like you were weird. I mean, you just didn't belong there. You know, it's, it's more like you, you to meet somebody, well, hey, Jesus saves, but he also shaves, you know, something like something, <laughs> something dumb like that, you know, and then it would progress, you know, I mean, even before that, and I, I wasn't there around then, but, you know, women, you had to wear a dress, I talked to somebody after the church service, you had to wear a dress, if you're a woman, and you, boy, you couldn't wear pants, now pants are okay, now, now we've progressed, we've progressed beyond, it's still an issue now, now it's, well, does a person up here wear blue jeans or not blue jeans, what's, what's okay? Uh, can we discriminate based on, on what you wear, on appearances? And I would just say the Bible does talk about that. I would just say, if I could just summarize it in two categories. Number one, you dress, you, what is the mission of what God has called you to do? And you dress in a way that would be consistent with the people you're trying to reach. If you're from a Baptist background, you would say, oh, that's exactly what Lottie Moon used to say. Or if you weren't, if you're from a more reformed tradition, you would say that's exactly what Hudson Taylor would say. You dress like the culture you're trying to reach. So that's why a lot of these guys, you know, would wear blue jeans. It's not to be a thorn in your flesh. It's just to be relevant to the culture they're trying to reach. Um, so we can't be discriminatory based on these outward appearances. Um, Another one, another area would be something like ancestry. It could be nationality. It could be ethnic background. Uh, I would say today a big one would be maybe national uh, religious association. I, I think there's a, we tend to be more prejudiced or, or certainly more skeptical about somebody if they would come from maybe a Muslim background. You know, our antenna might be raised up a little bit. People, you know, I hear people talking about that. So there are a lot of ways that we can uh, be discriminatory inside the church as well. God is obviously colorblind, you know, red and yellow, black and white. All are very precious in his sight. Another way we can be discriminatory is age. You know, whether we're, if we're an older church, you know, we could be discriminatory against those, the, the younger folks who are coming in wanting to change everything. Or instead of valuing youth and energy and uh, uh, creative ideas, you know, you can tend to devaluate, devaluate that. On the other hand, there is the temptation for the younger generation to devalue uh, the wisdom and the experience of the older generation as well. So he's just warning against things like that that could divide uh, a church. I loved what Ronald Reagan said when he was running against Mondale. Mondale was trying to use the argument of his age against him in this, in this election. And uh, Reagan graciously 
responded to him. He said, yes, I am more mature than you, but I won't hold that against you. <laughs> uh, things like um, achievement, you know, that society tends to applaud winners, you know, looks down on losers. Uh, so, you know, if you're from Iowa State, you know, we're, we, we don't want to do that. We realize that that would be a thorn in your flesh. Um, so, and, and here, especially in James right now, what he is talking about, and he talks about it here, and he talks about it a number of times. So this was a big issue in the church, and that was the, the haves and the have-nots. There are a lot of people who had a lot of wealth, and there were a lot of people who were very, very poor. And so it tended to divide the ranks within the local church. And so James wants to make a specific point about, about that. I want to make it very clear before I begin this is that the Bible, in the Bible, God never intends for classes to be eradicated. Uh, as a matter of fact, he says he creates the poor. He creates uh, the wealthy. In fact, he demands the different classes, demands that we live, that all of us, no matter if we're poor or wealthy, that we all live in a way that we would live by faith to depend on him. Uh, it's clearly God who, God who creates some people with, with gifts that can earn a lot of money. He creates, he creates others with gifts that earn a day's wage. We're not to disparage one another for those gifts that God has given us. All throughout history, we have the strata of society. But in both the Old Testament and in the New Testament, the poor, the alien, the widow, the handicapped, all of them are to be in one body taken care of by the people of God. Thus being a radical, a radically different picture to the world of how to deal with God's creation. That's a picture of the gospel, just like marriage is a picture of the gospel. Two things that shouldn't go together goes together. It's a picture of the gospel. As a matter of fact, Jesus was even reprimanded by his culture for his compassion. He had compassion on a handicapped. He had compassion for children. And, and he would say, suffer the little children to come unto me. He had compassion on, on women. He, he exalted women and was renounced for that. In John 4, uh, the disciples were even amazed that he was speaking with women. For the poor, he raised them up. He blessed them. For foreigners, he embraced them. For sinners, he became, he was known as the friend of sinners and forgave them and expressed mercy to them. So his love and compassion didn't really respond at all to the externals, but he was much more driven by the heart of an individual, by the future and the heart of a person. That's exactly where you and I are to be as a follower in faith uh, if we're going to prove that we're his disciples and not deceive ourselves. So Paul says, live in harmony with one another. Don't be haughty. Associate with the lowly. Don't be conceited. Uh, God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked, that there be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. So in the New Testament, you never see the church divided up by classes. You never, you never see, a, a, well, this church is going to be for Jewish Christians. This church is going to be for Gentile Christians. This church is going to be for this color, this church for that color, this church for rich, this church for poor, this church for educated, this church for uneducated. You never see that context. Um, 
in the, in the New Testament because for all those things to be together, which is a picture of what heaven's going to be, it demands incredible faith. It demands real faith that's not disease, de deceived to work, to work out the royal love that he talks about in this passage. So that's what the family of God is to be. So the principle is, my brothers, don't show partiality, which is the root word, uh, prosopon, or face. Don't, don't be a respecter of faces. Don't do that as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of, of glory. And yet, uh, this was a massive problem in the church. There was tremendous uh, social snobbery that was going on, and James challenges the church to be joined together in one family by the only thing they could draw them together, and we just celebrated it in communion, the blood of Jesus Christ. It's the only thing that'll pull it together. So the problem in this church, and so James gives this illustration, uh, the illustration of the case of the nearsighted usher. These two guys, they were strangers. We know, we know they're strangers because they didn't know where to sit. They both come into the church at the same time. And uh, so James says, For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, Sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, You stand over there, sit down at my feet. Have, um, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Well, uh, the first thing I want to say is, and I don't want you to miss this, James doesn't criticize the guy coming in for being wealthy. He criticizes the church. He criticizes the church for being partial to him. Do you see that? You got it? This man for having wealth is never criticized. It's the church for showing partiality. So what you have then is first guy walks in and the members in the church, you know, they were all members of the upper crust, you know, gather around him. The Bible says specifically he was gold-fingered and had shining clothes. Gold-fingered, shining clothes. And so all the upper crust gathers around him. By the way, do you know the etymological root of the, our English word upper crust? It's a bunch of crumbs held together by their own dough. Have you ever heard that? <laughs> Anyway, so they gather around him, and to the poor guy who comes in, they say, hey, you, you, know, you go over there, you literally, you sit under my footstool. So then James says, that's a situation, uh, it's not right, and he says that favoritism is evil. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves? So he knows we're talking about within the local church, we're talking about believers, we're not talking about right-wrong issues, we're talking about left-right issues, okay? Okay. Uh, You've made these, decisions, these distinctions. Whether it be social snobbery, whether it be, it can today, a big one would be gender snobbery. It could be race, background, position, education snobbery, especially at a church around the university. You know, that could certainly be an issue. In other words, it's evil for me to make a division by making distinctions because I'm not the judge. That's his point. I'm not the judge. I can't do it. And yet it's so interesting that throughout people get opposed to uh, class distinctions. You know, I mean, even, our, even our government tries to pare down class distinctions, but you don't see that in the Bible at all. 
As a matter of fact, when you even look at communism, communism, communism began because the Russians reacted to class snobbery of, in the 1800s of the czars. And so what they saw was a real problem. They did see a real problem, and that was the non-compassionate use of accumulated wealth. And, and the Bible clearly addresses that. They saw the non-compassionate use of accumulated wealth. So what they decided to do to fix the problem, instead of going to the Bible, they chose an atheistic, an atheistic way to deal with it. Francis Schaeffer, uh, a great philosopher, author, uh, calls communism, and this blew my mind, he calls communism a Christian heresy. Christian heresy. Why would he say that? He was saying because you're trying to solve a very real biblical issue in an atheistic way. You're, you say the answer is just eliminate classes. That's the solution. It's the same thing the French did in 1789 with the French Revolution, a, a response to non-compassionate treatment, uh, a non-compassionate use of, of uh, accumulated wealth, was just do, do, <laughs> do away with the aristocracy. And 50,000 aristocrats were beheaded. So uh, eliminating class was never the biblical challenge. It was, it was never the biblical injunction. Eliminating classes by people, whether it be by communism or by the guillotine, was never, an, will never be, the, the government will never be the solution for class snobbery by eliminating classes. It will never work. Just look at the guillotine. Just look at communism. It will never work. Well, what will work? Well, God, in his providential creative wisdom, created people to be differently. He created the rich. He created the poor. He gave some the ability to make a lot. He gave some the ability to make a day's wage. And if there's somebody without, he has challenged those who have to be compassionate in their care for those with little. That's a whole picture of the Bible. Favoritism, then, secondly, reveals erroneous thinking. Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith, heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich ones, the ones who oppress you, the ones that drag you into court, are they not the ones who blaspheme and the honorable name of which you are called? You know, believe me, heaven is not, to be, it's not going to be some who's who condo. You know, heaven is going to be filled, not with the rich, not with the poor, but with the meek who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Some on earth might have had a lot, some a little. But they're going to be filled with the meek who hunger and thirst for righteousness. It's going to be filled with those who were persecuted for righteousness. Those are the ones who will inherit heaven. So, you know, I tell you, it's been so exciting for me. Just on the elder board, we've had a bunch of emails going around because, you know, looking at 2020 vision, looking at, we've got land in the North Liberty. We've got what God is doing miraculously on the Southeast side, what they're doing here through the university. And so it's just praying that God will give us great wisdom to know how to move forward as we keep these missional objectives in their proper priority and yet continue to move forward as a church. That's a wonderful challenge. So it, it, it's an awful lot of fun. So I'm excited about that. Pray for us. We have a meeting Tuesday night. Pray for the elders as we meet. And we'll let you know Tuesday night, pray for us that, that we would be real sensitive and 
follow God's leading here. The fact is, you know, God has purposefully made us all very different, and that requires faith, (laughs) okay? It, It takes faith to pray for a child and have that child heal. It takes just as much faith to pray for a child and that child is taken home. Um, Likewise, uh, for those who have very little, it takes a tremendous amount of faith to pray that God will miraculously meet their very real felt needs. At the same time, it takes a lot of faith for someone with a lot to pray that God would motivate their hearts to have the compassionate use of their funds to help those with very little. So we're given a lot of instruction in the Bible. Um, And the truth is, if there's anybody in the world who cannot be partial, it's a Christian. We can't be partial when you think about it. Because, you know, God said, when I'm weak, I need God's strength. God, I'm ignorant, therefore I need your wisdom. I am sinful, therefore I need your righteousness. How, if I am a saved Christian, how in the world can I be partial? Makes no sense. When, if you really understand your condition without Christ and God saves you by his grace, how can you be partial? You have no basis to be partial. So favoritism then is unloving and unlawful. So this is where we get to the royal law. I'm going to give you... Um, I'm going to give you one illustration. The only good illustration I could think of is one that deals, I've got to use one of my kids as an example. It's a made-up example. John, can I use you? Is it okay? Okay, thank you. I don't want to put you on the spot. but <laughs> Okay, let me read it first, and I'm going to give you an illustration. If, you're really, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails at even one little point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, don't commit adultery, also said, don't murder. If you don't commit adultery but do murder, you've become a transgressor of the whole thing. So there's some 613 laws throughout the entire Old Testament. It could all be reduced down to one simple thing, the love of to love, okay, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself, to love, all of it reduced down to love, okay, so the law, he's given a picture, law is like one big giant piece of glass, you know, and you, you can't just break part of the glass, I mean, if you break the pane of glass, the whole thing just shatters, okay, so let me give you an illustration, let's just say for, this is an example, let's just say, for example, John's a little boy, and, uh, And so I say, John, we're at the table eating. I say, John, don't put your elbows on the table because it would be real easy to knock over the glass of milk. So John puts his elbows on the table. He spills milk. He immediately becomes like Perry Mason. Oh, Dad, I am so sorry. You know, you, you gave me a law. You gave me a rule not to put my elbows on the table. And I am so sorry I broke that law. But there are so many laws you have given me that I have upheld. You told me not to be mean to my sisters. And I was not mean to Lizzie. Uh, you told me not to, uh, you know, not to... Uh, leave the house before I make my bed and I made my bed. Not to leave the house before I brush my teeth and I brush my teeth. Father, you have given me a plethora of laws and I've kept all those laws. I've only defiled the one law. I appeal to your mercy. And I would say to John, John, 
He who said to you and gave you the rule to make your bed, to brush your teeth, to flush the toilet, to be kind to your sisters, also gave you the rule not to put your elbows on the table. John, you didn't just break or violate one rule, one law. You violated me, your father. See, the point James is making is this. He's saying to these guys who were being respecter of faces, they were saying, well, it's just no big deal. And honestly, you know, as I prepared this message, I thought, oh, I can come up with a whole list of ways people are discriminatory. And I would come up, and I did. I came up with all the lists that I've sort of got under control. <laughs> and then I thought of the list that I could be very convicted by and I need your prayer for, okay? Uh, but the point James is saying is this. You're saying it's just no big deal. It's no big deal. These are just little things, little things. And, and what, what James is saying is, look, when you violate the little person, you think it's little. When you violate the widow, when you violate the poor, when you violate the handicapped, the alien of the, lane, of the land, you don't just violate a little person, you violate me. And that's a big sin. That's why God consistently, I mean consistently through the scriptures, identifies with a little person. He who gives to the poor lends, who? To who? Lends to the Lord. Don't mistreat the orphan or the widow because I am the father to the orphan. I am the husband to the widow. I will take up their reproach. He who closes his heart to the poor will have plenty of curses. But he who opens his heart to the poor will have plenty of of blessing. He who mocks the poor despises his maker. He's saying it's a big, it's not a little thing, it's a big thing. If a guy goes bankrupt, can you buy the property of a person who goes bankrupt? No. Only the redeemer, only the kinsman redeemer could buy it and then only to give it back to the person who lost it. When you reap your fields, what are you to do when you reap your fields? Do you reap the corners of the field? No, you don't reap the corner of the fields. You leave the corner of the fields for Naomi, for Ruth, for the poor. When you harvest your figs, do you shake all the branches? Do you get every last fig off? No, you beat it from the trunk to the top and down. You don't go through the boughs. You leave that for the poor. And every seventh year when you harvest your fields, do you harvest the fields and make a profit? No, you leave the harvest in the fields. That's for the poor. So in Israel, you did have classes, but you also had the provision of God for the community of God to make a profound statement to the world around that all are made in the image of God. All are part of God's family. 
He's saying, look, this favoritism is disastrous. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty, for judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. He's saying, look, err there. Err, err on the side of mercy. Don't show favoritism. Um, don't be deceived. Or 1 John 4, look, we've got to love one another. Love is of God. Everyone who loves has been born of God. That, that's that showing that royal love is just an indicator of your real, genuine faith that you haven't been deceived. Um, and that's what the first century church was all about. They were never separated in social strata. You didn't see a church for the poor. You didn't see a church for the wealthy. You didn't see a church for the educated. You didn't see a church of the uneducated. You didn't see a church of Jews. You didn't see a church of only Gentiles. You saw them together. You know, a lot of us have a very narrow love. And my challenge, here's my challenge to me. These are some great discussion questions if you're in a community group. And it would be, how can we, by the grace of God, broaden the circle of our friendships? And not just within the church, but also outside of the church. When I, again, most of this is talking about in the church, um, left-right issues, but also Jesus was a friend of sinners, right-wrong issues. How can we also be a friend outside of the church to make an impact for the gospel in right-wrong issues? How can we broaden the circle of our friendships? I think we need to look within ourselves, evaluate our own attitudes, and I think God longs for us to be a channel of his love, not only within the church, but also outside the church as well. Um, you think, you know, I wrestled with this question the last couple of weeks. Why was Jesus called a friend of sinners? Why? And I think all of a sudden it hit me why he's called a friend of sinners, and that is that he could see them for what they could be in him as opposed to what others could see, how others could see them. He could see them in a way others could not. That's why he was a friend. He could see people in a way others could not. I'll give you some examples. When you and I looked at Simon, what did we see? Now, we saw some uneducated fishermen. You know what Jesus saw in Simon? Jesus saw a rock. For us, you know, we would look at Matthew and we would look in disgust. Very well educated, very wealthy, undesirable occupation. But you know what Jesus saw when he looked at Matthew? He looked at a faithful disciple who would one day write one of the Gospels. You, when you and I would look at the sinful woman at the well of Sychar, you know, we might look with a condemning glance, but Jesus saw a valuable instrument who would reap a mighty great harvest for Christ. Solitarsis, but I tell you what, we would be seething with venom when we would look at a guy who would be killing innocent people. Even though he was extremely well educated, he used all of that education for his own promotion. But when Jesus saw the Saul of Tarsus, even while he was breathing threats of slaughter, he saw an apostle, an apostle who would one day write most of the New Testament 
in virtually a good portion of the, all the, of the epistles. I really think one of the most powerful testimonies that we can have as a church is to come together as a united body from every walk of life, different educational experiences, different languages, different colors, different economic backgrounds, different social structures, worshiping, loving, serving, and being involved in mission together. So, a few questions you can wrestle with. Be a good one to do it at home. Be a good one to do in your community group. And that, what can you do? How can you begin to see a person as Jesus would see him? The way Jesus looked at people, not as they were, but as they could be in Christ. How can you begin to do? How can you begin to broaden your sphere of friendships? Not only in the church, but outside of the church. How can you be? What can you do to be known as a friend of sinners? How can you begin to love them? Well, I'll tell you, my prayer for Parkview is that if anybody outside this church throughout this area would say, hey, what do you know about Parkview? They would just shake their head in utter disbelief. I, I just can't believe that church. They're, they're an incredible church. It's filled with all different kinds of people. But when you look at what God is doing through them, you know, you, you look at the little scholars up here, how awesome, how awesome is that? My, my prayer would be that's what Parkview Church would be known for. Well, let's all stand up. We'll, we'll close with prayer. Father, uh, we just bow our heads before you as a body. Um, we recognize, Lord, that snobbery and the longing to obtain power by externalities is, is something that has been built into us. And we have been educated to do it. We've been motivated to do it. Our society has provided the means by which we can do it. But it certainly runs counterculture to what you have done in Christ through your word, through what's true about heaven. And Lord, there's nothing that's going to eradicate this wickedness other than a clear understanding of the truth that comes from the Bible, from the nature of Jesus, from the love of God, from the power of the Holy Spirit. And I pray, Lord, for Parkview that James 2 could be erected as a stop sign and that whenever I come to an option in my life, of how I'm going to respond to somebody different from myself, that my treatment of them would be a response flowing out of what you have done for me and who they are in your sight, not simply the externals. And Lord God, I want to pray for that man, that woman, that young, young man, young woman who is here today thinking that they could perhaps enter heaven because they thought, They've kept the majority of the law. Lord, let them know that they haven't just disobeyed the law. They've disobeyed you. And that's why you provided salvation for us, not on a reward system, but through the crucifixion, the death, burial, and resurrection of your son so that we can trust him who is the very righteousness of God and stand clothed in his righteousness. So God, our only response then is not to stand in our own abilities, but to stand amazed in the presence of Jesus, the Nazarene, and to wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned unclean, 
He's the one in whom we must put our hope and our trust. It's only in his finished work of salvation through his sacrificial death on the cross for my sin that I can be cleansed, that I can be forgiven, that I can be set free to live a whole new life. Oh, how marvelous. Oh, how wonderful. And oh God, our song will ever be, oh, how marvelous, oh, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. And we ask this in Jesus' precious and most holy name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Parkview Church in Iowa City, Iowa. Parkview's mission is to love God, love others, and serve the world. If you live in the Iowa City area, we invite you to join us in person for services every weekend. You can get service times and directions, download messages, and get news and information about Parkview Church by visiting www.parkviewchurch.org. You can also contact us by phone at 319-354-5580 or write to us at Parkview Church, 15 Foster Road, Iowa City, Iowa, 52245.